Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the SR Times podcast. I'm your host and also editor of Stroke Rehab Times, Andrew Nealon. Throughout this podcast series, we'll be speaking to some truly inspirational individuals and hearing their amazing stories. Stories like that of Dr. Kate Alletz, who joins us for this very first episode. Before we do get into the episode, if you could follow us on wherever you're listening to this podcast, so you're alerted every time a new episode is out. I was actually misdiagnosed with stress uh, and to go home and, and take some, some cocodamol and rest because I was doing too much. In actual fact, four hours later when I came home, I collapsed on the sofa. I ended up on life support machine at 39, super fit, 70 valerie runner. And my family were assembled because if I'd, if I'd survived my brainstem stroke, uh, um, I would have no quality of life. So they had an option to pull the plug on my life support. I'm helping um, OTs, uh, give them the skills, confidence and knowledge to open up conversations with patients about sexuality, you know, after brain injury. I'm lucky enough to be joined by Kate, who's here to tell us all about Young Stroke. Kate, how are you, first and foremost? I'm doing okay. I think I had... Oh, thanks for having me, by the way. I'm so excited to be here. Um, I think I've just recovered from COVID, which is a bit of a pain, but I'm fine now. <laughs> Firing on all cylinders. So, Kate, you're here to tell us about your story in Young Stroke today. So why don't you tell us first how you came to be so passionate about Young Stroke? Well, right, I'll tell you what happened. My, my story is a bit of a, a, bit of a story. Um, 13 years ago, I was running a marketing business, three young kids, four, eight, and 10. Uh, I ran obsessively 70 miles a week. I was due to climb Kilimanjaro by the Western Breach for my 40th later in the year in 2010. And I was on the radio talking about it, fundraising. So my life was busy. I was very capable. I was, I was trying to juggle far too many balls. And basically, I had a headache for two weeks. I was too busy to investigate. I hadn't got time to be ill. But when my ex-husband decided to um, insist I went to the hospital, I was actually misdiagnosed with stress uh, and to go home and, and take some, some cocodamol and rest because I was doing too much. In actual fact, four hours later when I came home, I collapsed on the sofa, proceeded to wet myself, which was very attractive. And, um, and then I went into a state which my husband thought was a fit, but the paramedic, I heard him as I was in and out of consciousness saying, um, no, sorry, Mr. Ellis, it's much more serious than that. And I went back to hospital. The doctor that misdiagnosed me went gray, apparently. I ended up on life support machine at 39, super fit, 70 valerie runner. And my family were assembled because if I'd, if I'd survived my brainstem stroke, uh, um, I would have no quality of life. So they had an option to pull the plug on my life support. Three days later, I emerged from the medically induced coma and I was completely locked in. So below my eyelids, um, I couldn't move a thing. I couldn't even move my eyelids for the first two weeks. 
but I could think, feel, see, hear everything. Think buried alive and you'll get an idea. It's pretty horrific. So, um, yeah, that's what happened. So what can you remember like about the, the, the kind of locked in syndrome? What can you remember about those moments? Uh, it was it, frankly horrific. I mean, if you think motor neuron disease, awful, awful progressive illness, the point that they uh, end at is the point I arrived at instantly overnight. Um, I mean, the, 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 the pain in my legs, the cramp, not being able to tell anybody, not being able to move them, the separation anxiety from my three young kids that I adored, my hallucinations, because I, I was convinced I was being um, killed off with a graphite drip that doesn't exist, by the way. Um, I did Google that when I came home. And um, the boredom, you know, I had a clock on the wall and every minute felt like an hour and every hour felt like a week. I had nothing, and yet I could see, hear, and every, hear everything going on around me. And I was as cognitive as I am talking to you now. So, um, you know, but I was just trapped inside my body. And it took two weeks for my best mate to identify there's a slight flicker in my eyelids, and she could maybe use that to harness a, a blink where she actually could try and ask me questions, and I could respond with two blinks for yes, one blink for no. And in fact, she did. In that moment when she unlocked me, um, unlike the doctors at that time, um, was like, imagine every Christmas, every birthday, the birth of your children times a million billion was the happiest I felt at that moment that I was unlocked. I was still totally paralysed, but that moment was when I, people around me realised I was still me inside. I mean, you mentioned there about your your friend uh, realizing the flickers. Uh, I spoke to a guy called Nick Clark. He'd had a stroke, and he runs his own stroke charity now. And he was telling us about how he often goes into uh, stroke wards and kind of tries to help with with rehab processes. And he mentioned that there was one guy they'd kind of given up on um, that he was mute and yeah. in a game of hangman. And yeah. said, well, no, wait a second. Let me just kind of try and work with him. Yeah. Uh, by, the, by the end of the session, the, the, the guy managed to come out with come out with the word, and I find it amazing that it's... Some... It, it, it's, it's incredible, you know, and, and, and to be honest, I mean, uh, very quickly, and I would like you to ask me about that because some of the experiences I've had in my global advocacy have been extraordinary i mean extraordinary but i mean i went for nine weeks in icu by week eight the only thing that moved was my right thumb three millimeters i managed to get to rehab because i was young had kids i was fit um and six weeks after i got there i was written off that i should go into a nursing home because there was no improvement um when i thought i was going there for them to ramp up my therapy that being written off with a child who's middle child, who's got a chip on her shoulder, who's always worked really hard and always had to be resourceful, was the impetus I needed to stop feeling depressed and stop feeling sorry for myself because the only person that could, and there was no guarantee, get me home to my children, who I absolutely adored and was massively anxious about being separated from, was me. And that was when I, what I called in my book, willing. I willed my body, not just 10 times, three, um, 30 times a day. I did it all day long, every day. 
when I didn't watch crap TV, I what I just focused on different parts of my body and just used to have an argument with myself in my head going, move, damn you, damn you, just bloody well move. And my goals were just huge. I'd like, I was not going to just walk out of hospital. I was going to run by my first anniversary. <laughs> the nurses laughed at that. Um, my, I was going to hug my kids. I was going to bloody well eat again because I hated not eating. I, I could have ripped someone's head off for eating in front of me. It was just awful. And so then I worked really hard. And I'll give you an example. My left side didn't move for five months. And I used to sit in bed and I'd stare at my big left toe. And I, I'd been going in my head, move, damn me, damn me, just bloody well move. And, you know, I could argue with myself in a room on my own, I'm sure. But anyway, two weeks on, I only got a bloody well flicker, didn't I, my left toe. And I'm thinking, I'm a marketeer, thinking simply, if I can make that toe move, that being the farthest from my brain, then game on for the whole of my left side. So all I did was whether it was with my tongue, my lips, my arm, my forearm, my fingers, every part of my body, I had to slowly, slowly get those connections. But I knew that if I got the connections, they'd never go. I got fatigue, and you might be able to do two or three flickers at once. But if I got those flickers, they would never go. It was a question of getting stronger, building my strength. So that's how simply I looked at things. And, you know, I'm here today. I mean, it's incredible, really. But very quickly, I have to say, I'm not going to gloss over this. You know, I took risks. I took big risks that the Health and Safety Brigade in the hospital would not have uh, allowed me to do. But I did, because if you don't take risks, you don't get better. And that's, I mean, I felt there were considered risks. They didn't. But, um, you know, I did fall in the showers. I had awful falls, but I wanted to shower on my own. It meant, it mattered to me. And the thing is, goals, they've got to matter. That's the key. You know, with all our young stroke and anybody who's had a stroke, for them to improve, what we've got to understand and the clinicians have to really hone in on what matters, whether it's knitting a jumper whether it's cooking whether which wouldn't be for me or cleaning um but you know what what matters to that individual when they when they really understand that then people are motivated to rehabilitate to improve rehabilitation's bloody hard work it is extraordinarily hard and then the emotional side the issues on the relationship i mean it's phenomenal um but but i'm that's what happened to me and i came home and I have to tell you this because it's this is what happened to me. Um, I, I came home, I had the most extraordinary PTSD. It was that for two weeks, it was amazing. And then I had the realization that I was doubly incontinent. I couldn't walk around the room with, uh, without my Buckingham um, frame, two yards. Um, I did walk out of hospital, by the way. Um, but um, I was very, I was retired off at 40. I mean, I'm the woman who had her own business, you know, and, and sitting and reading all day. I mean, I mean, I felt like I had no purpose, no worth. I'd lost my career. I'd lost my sense of identity, um, my purpose. I mean, everything had gone, not just my health and my physicality, my emotional health. And then the phone rang and it was only the BBC producer from, from just before my show when I was talking about going up Kilimanjaro. And she asked me in the October, how did my trip go in the June? And I answered with a very strained voice. And I said, it never happened. She said, why? And I said, I had a stroke. And they sent a taxi straight away. 
uh, the next day, I went on Roni's programme on BBC. That was extraordinary. That won them awards. But that programme got syndicated all around the world. Jeremy Vine picked it up. And then within a week, I'm on Sky News. I'm in South Africa, Australia, China, New York. I mean, Europe. I mean, it went crazy. Now, you think, brilliant, I got my purpose back. Yeah, I did, but I didn't get paid, so it was not very good. <laughs> but the most important thing from all that, that you do have to realise, is from that, I had mothers, fathers, sisters, daughters, brothers, from all walks of life all over the world, emailing me on the back of my media exposure, because I was the amazing woman that recovered from locked-in syndrome, asking for my help. So much so, I had to set up my own registered charity within three months of leaving hospital that I was there 10 months for. And I met some extraordinary people. And my strap line for my charity was, because I was desperate not to give people false hope, but not quash hope either, was no promises, just possibilities. And it was for all young stroke survivors, not just people affected by locked-in syndrome. And um, it was an inspirational charity because so many charities for stroke and um, so many Facebook groups are quite negative. And it was like, you know, this has happened and I've got to try and be the best version of me. And I'm not going to be the best version of me being surrounded by people who are negative. So my charity was filling a gap and it, and it created a purpose for me. And it, I ran it for five years and I met, I met a woman and I inspired her. She'd actually been locked in for 17 years with a headrest in a wheelchair. Two years after my intervention, she ate for the first time in 19 years and stood up on a plinth. This is a woman who'd done nothing for 17 years. I met a guy in New York, you know, his wife sent me a text and said, Rob walking in a loo leg brace, you taught us everything is possible if you believe. I mean, there's been so many examples. Most recently, only two weeks ago, I went to see a woman in uh, the northwest and uh, she spelt out on her eye gaze machine that um it hurts when they change when they do personal care on her uh, i cry i was so upset with this that i went to the ccg and i said this is what someone in your uh, region is saying about their care they can't even have personal care because it hurts and it turns out they've, they've they've withdrawn passive therapy so you know and yet the ccg are paying for it so it has so they've pulled the money so what uh, you know beyond just helping families and people affected by, by locked in or stroke to be the best version people are uh, I, you know i'm having i'm helping them directly with their care which is which is a gift and i'm very grateful that that I'm able to do that, if I'm really honest, because it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, I wouldn't. I want to just go back to where you mentioned the the misdiagnosis. I mean, I read read your whole bio on on your site. And I mean, you, the story is amazing, Kate. I mean, it's like every time you've been knocked back, you've managed to just deal with it in an amazing way and, and come back. I just wondered, had, have you spoke to the, that doctor since the misdiagnosis, or had any kind of communication? Well, do you know, it's really interesting. Not, no, not directly, but I can tell you um, two years after my stroke, I did a, a talk in a library um, in Sheffield and I, the whole library was full of blue rinses and I'm not being disrespectful because I love old people, but it was old people. And, um, and there was one guy at the front there and he 
and he just stuck out like a sore thumb. And I've and that was the closest I've ever known that someone was there who who nursed me and who was a doctor for me. And he was a guy that I thought was so out of so out of place in this room that I thought he was there. But I have actually spoken, this is really interesting, I have actually spoken to Graham Venables, who was my neurologist at the time. Now he's since retired, but he works with a stroke pathway team in Sheffield. And bizarrely, next month, I'm having a meeting with them to collaborate on what I hope would be a project for them to help um, deliver their quality markers for the stroke pathway in Sheffield. I've got some really exciting ideas. And what a story to work with the stroke pathway in Sheffield, having been through the stroke pathway in Sheffield. It was quite extraordinary. But, you know, ambitious as ever. Um, so, um, you know, watch this space. <laughs> but, um, but my, my work, I'm sorry, you asked me whatever you want. I don't know if I answered your question there. Please tell me if I didn't. No, no that, that covered it. So you've mentioned uh, that your collaboration with, with this, uh, that sort of pathway. What else have you got going on, going on at the moment? Oh, my gosh, it's just crazy. It's just, I mean, I got an honorary doctorate at the university for, um, for my work with my connections. I got a... I got two and a quarter million pounds research money for published research we've done on Twitter, which is bizarre. I've even met Boris and the Queen. It's just crazy. But my collaborations now are really important to me. I've been working now for two years with Grippable and they are extraordinary. Their tech makes f rehab fun. Now, knowing how hard rehabilitating is, that is the key. It's got to be fun. It's got to matter to you. It's got to be fun. Um, that is really crucial. In fact, just recently we wrote an awareness piece about, I think, learned non-use is really important. This idea of use it or lose it, more move it or lose it. Because a lot of young stroke survivors suffer with neglect after stroke, so they overcompensate with their better limb, their stronger limb. But what what I love about Grippable is we know that from constraint-induced movement therapy that you need a minimum of three hours a day uh, practice to improve your limbs. And, and in their instance, what they do is they help improve grip strength, but they do it in a fun way so people don't realise they're actually doing their rehab when they're playing games on their, their handsets. It's incredible. So I'm really, really proud because... What they do with me proves to me that they're not just in it for the bells and whistles, the features of this very nice, very useful product that they produce, this piece of tech, but they actually care. If you look over the blogs I've written over the years, um, it, I mean, they really do care. They care that people are able to hug their kids. They care that people write or drive again or hold a pint down the pub. And they allow people the ability to practice to be able to do those things and that's what I love about them I'm also working with beautiful voice for people who've got problems with their speech I have dysarthria I have dysphagia I have a lot of things wrong with me but you know um, the idea is they help uh, improve muscle strength for you know uh, in your throat so you can speak better articulate better and that's important for mental health for confidence for inclusion I mean, so I'm really proud to be working with both because they're both really close to my heart. I mean, I do a lot of training. I do stress management and burnout resiliency training for leadership. And, you know, anxiety training is quite important now, getting a grip. And, 
you know, and the other thing I'm doing now is I'm helping, oh, this is really interesting. I'm helping um, OTs uh, give them the skills, confidence and knowledge to open up conversations with patients about sexuality, you know, after brain injury. I mean, it's so important. I did some research during lockdown when my work all ended, um, had to bounce back again. And, um, you know, discovered that people in the community after stroke are lonely, they don't have any intimacy. Certainly a lot of them don't have any sex. And that's a basic human right. Intimacy is a basic human right. And when one woman wrote on my Facebook group, my husband told me it was like having sex with a dead body. I thought, we need to give this better skills to OTs who are often willing but unable because of their skills to open up these conversations and create the safe spaces they need to. So I'm really, really excited about that training. I'm doing it in collaboration with a doctor in Melbourne, actually. So it's crazy. Uh, and dignity and care and compassionate leadership. I cover the gamut of things. So, you know, my, who would have thought 13 years ago when I'm lying on life support, they wanted to turn off and have no quality of life that 13 years on, you know, I'm just scratching the surface with some of the stuff I've done. It's just crazy. <laughs> I mean, it is. I mean, there's so many things you've done. I mean, looking at your bio, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I've seen you've done the TEDx talks and I mean, some truly inspirational people, and I mean, that list you fit right in with uh, have done those talks. What what was that like being part of, of TEDx? Well, do you know, I have to say, um, I was a real thrill to be asked. I was on holiday in Turkey and the email came through and I'm like, oh my God. And, um, and, uh, but the trouble is, if I'm being really honest, is I do my speeches. I do loads of leadership talks, conference speeches and so on. That was my real bread and butter until lockdown. Um, and But I do it off the cuff. I have pictures and videos of my story over the years. So you can really see I'm not just making this stuff up. This stuff really has happened. But, um, but I don't have a script. And with TEDx, it's like, you do not grave for 18 minutes. And that's sacrosanct. And I'm like, really, really... I'm not going to say, really worried about, you know, going over. And then I don't know whether it's because I've got a really visual brain that I can't retain scripts. I'd be useless as an actress because I am, you know, it's just the pictures remind me, all right, I've got to talk about that now. And all right, I've got to talk about that. I'm just giving my secrets away. But, um, yeah, I, I loved it. It was a brilliant experience. But I had post-its all over my house trying to remember my lines. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there we are. I've said it now. <laughs> I mean, everyone's got their own method. <laughs> methods. Um, it is. I mean, I, I know what it's like. I mean, being told that you've got to stick to a script. It's like <laughs> it, was, it was. It was hard, but you know, I did it. Um, you know, uh, they say that you know you don't ever improve in your comfort zone, and I can tell you. Uh, I mean, I'm now divorced. I'm on my own. The last few years, like it has been for everybody has been extraordinarily hard, well, for some of us, um, you know, and I've had to rethink things, hence I've done a bit more training and written training courses. 
uh, you know, I've, I've written a course on them delivering next week on um, everybody can learn resiliency superpowers and I'm talking about burnout and stress and this, that and the other. And I think that, um, I don't know, I, I'm very lucky now to be where I'm at and I'm, I'm very proud that I managed to think outside the box and I, I, I was in a comfort zone and I hit them face off. Sometimes I get tired of being in comfort zones. Sometimes I'm thinking, can I just, can I just, you know, cruise a little bit, you know, stop throwing curveballs at me life. But that's my life and that's how it's been. And, you know, you've just got to keep going forward and take the hits and it's tough and I'm not saying it isn't and um but um you know it's constantly rethinking and adjusting and you know and 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 not looking and I've got this saying where yesterday is history tomorrow is a mystery so it's all about today and that's the key is trying to hone in on today and just think the enormous picture and what we'll be doing in the next 10 years is just too scary to think about on my own. But um, I'm just going to focus on today. Well, I'm going to try to. So, you know, I think, I think really if people can go away from hearing this, feeling that, yeah, I'm human, I have had not. I can tell you my fails, we've talked about some of the successes, but my fails have been extraordinary. Uh, but you learn more from failure than you do from any success um, and um, you know as painful as it is and I think that's a really key message that I'm not a superhuman um, I'm just human um, and I have fails like the rest of us um, and they hurt and sometimes I have to lick my wounds for a bit but then you have to bounce back so um, you know I'm proud that I've been able to make a difference with my life I think life is about making a difference it's having a laugh and it's creating memories of people who love you. And for me, I, I do one and two quite easily. Um, but the third one is the thing I've got to work on now, if I'm being really honest. Um, so I think that's really key. And I think what's really key for any stroke survivor, whether you're young, old or whatever, use it, move it or lose it. It's so important. You know, once you've got a connection, You've got to build the strength and you've got to keep doing it. And you've got to try and do it in a way that it's fun. Um, you've also got to do it in a way because you're aiming and striving for something that really, really matters to you. And I think that's really my message. And what I've learned myself and professionally is there are no promises, but they're just possibilities. But you have to try and you have to accept you'll fail or you'll stagnate, but then things will pick up again. And that's so important when we're just all facing this cost of living crisis, this political hell that we're in at the moment. Um, I think it's so easy to feel despondent and give up, but we all have to bounce back. You know, every day you have to wait, try and wake up and go, you know, I'm going to try my best to be the best I can be and to try and make myself happy. I'm not relying on someone else to make you happy. It's got to come from you. Um, so I've learned all this stuff um, and hopefully some of those messages are helpful for people affected by stroke, people working with stroke survivors, you know, promoting this message that move it or lose it is such a simple way to help people, uh, stroke survivors, be the best they can be. So many stroke survivors aren't aware of this learned non-use. 
it added some research. It's quite extraordinary. So I think that message in itself is such a simple one to convey and educate stroke survivors and brain injured people uh, about. So I think there's so much we can all do, but it doesn't require a lot of money, doesn't require a huge investment in training, and it, and it will make a real difference. So we can all live our best lives. I know we're, we're coming to an end, Kate, so I'll ask uh, just for people listening, because I think they, they will want to access your courses and, and learn, more, learn more about yourself on, on your site. Is that the best place to go to? Where, where can you uh, Yeah, well, you know what? I'm prolific on social media, at Kate Allett, but it's with two T's and an A. Um, and my website, as you've alluded to, thank you very much. Um, and, e- yeah, you can email me, call me. Call me, email me, tweet me, insta me, whatever me. I don't mind. I answer to most things. <laughs> and, um, you know, and everything I do tends to be bespoke. Um, so whatever I have on the shelf is just, is, 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 is changed, is varied. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping to do some work with UCL and I'm doing work with the Australian OT Association and the Irish OT Association, you know, Things grow, and that's how. That's why I guess why my honorary doctorate came about was the connections I've built over the years. You knock on lots of doors; some of them open, some of them don't. But all I can say is, you know, whatever you want, I try and modify uh, to your needs. So yeah, get in touch with me any way you can. Brilliant! Thank you very much, Kate, for joining us on this first episode of the SR Times podcast. And it's oh. been amazing to speak to you and learn learn all about your story. Oh, thanks, Andrew. I've really, really enjoyed it. Brilliant.